0: Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. Our guest today is Maelys Carraro, director of Catalyst Fund and the Impact Ventures practice at BFA Global. The Catalyst Fund is BFA's flagship inclusive FinTech accelerator, supported by the UK Department for International Development, JP Morgan, and previously the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It accelerates early stage inclusive fintech startups with flexible capital, bespoke venture-building support, and connections to investors and corporate innovators. Maylis has spent her career working alongside fintech startups, investors, banks, and donors to pioneer tech and data-enabled solutions for underserved communities in emerging markets. Previously, she worked at the International Finance Corporation the OECD, and Grameen Bank. She also co-founded Remit Mas, an inclusive fintech startup focused on remittances for savings for Latino immigrants in the US. She's a Fulbright Scholar and holds a dual MBA and a Master's in International Affairs from Columbia Business School and the School of International and Public Affairs. She received her BA, cum laude from University College London in political science and development economics. And now, without further ado, let's listen to a fascinating conversation with Maelis Carrado. Welcome, Maelis, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your personal background?
1: Absolutely, and thank you for having me in the program. It's uh, great to be chatting with you all and, and sharing more about uh, my experience in the Catalyst Fund. Uh, my name is Maylise Cardaro. I'm the director of the Catalyst Fund at, uh, run by BFA Global. Uh, and a bit about my background. I started my career really working in uh, the microfinance space and actually approaching the issues of uh, microfinancing more from a policy perspective. Uh, I was working at the OECD initially and researching how microfinance schemes might help the most vulnerable in adapt to climate change um, across South, South Asia. And then over time, realized that what I really wanted to do is actually create the solutions myself. Uh, and so from there, I um, went into a, a very practical role, actually, at the Grameen Bank, which is one of the first microfinance banks um, that you, know, you probably are familiar with in, in Bangladesh, um, and really got to understand how micro loans and, and, and lending schemes work for um, very low income, underserved communities. Uh, And so armed with that knowledge, um, I then joined uh, the IFC, where I spent about five years at the International Finance Corporation, which is the uh, private investing arm of the World Bank Group. I was based in turkey in istanbul uh, in the glory days actually of istanbul um, and worked with a, across a number of, of projects but my portfolio was global so it was uh, looking at investments and an advisory project for large banks microfinance institutions insurance companies uh, all the way from you know southeast asia to africa and latin america as well uh, and uh, working on mechanisms that We're basically merging grant capital and also commercial investing to maximize the impact, particularly in fragile and conflicted states. Um, And that was really an incredible, you know, ride. I learned a ton, Um, and at some point, figure out though that I kind of wanted to be again, like driven by this this needs to be in in action on the other side of the equation. So not necessarily in the investment and advisory side, but actually uh, having as you earlier said, a front row seat into the innovations that entrepreneurs uh, are creating, particularly in the fintech space. And th- those were the early days of um, you know, mobile banking solutions arising across several of these countries and digital financial services becoming attractive propositions. And so that's when I joined uh, an MBA myself. I went to Columbia, did a double degree at SIPA and economy uh, Business School. And during that time, actually launched my own venture. Uh, It was called Remitmas, and um, it was essentially a remittances service for low-income Latino immigrants to send money back to their families uh, in Latin America, but for savings. So it was really meant to be tailored money transfers in dedicated accounts for, say, healthcare expenses or education, or whether you're saving for a house. And um, it was that was you know great in so many ways, and uh, as they say, you're you're having a real life MBA when you actually build a company, um, and and so much more than that actually. But for many reasons, that the solution we were creating didn't work, end up working out a mix of you know, regulatory hurdles, um, value proposition design issues like on both sides of the equation, the senders and their receivers. I can tell you more about that. Um, so. When you know it was clear that we shouldn't pursue that opportunity anymore, um, we we closed and shut down the company. And um, at that point, I figured, well, what's the best way to now give back is probably share learnings and lessons on failure with other entrepreneurs. And that's when I joined BFA and, um, and started the Catalyst Fund. So Catalyst Fund is a, an accelerator for early stage, inclusive fintech companies that are pre-seed across emerging markets. And we provide them with very flexible seed capital plus hands-on and bespoke venture building support because we really realized, and I had this experience myself, that capital is only one side of the equation, but the level of expertise and technical know-how that you need when you're starting off a venture um, is often the real barrier. So we really created something that was pro-entrepreneur and designed to make early-stage companies creating in those environments succeed.
0: That's a very interesting background. So tell us a little bit more about the Catalyst Fund. So when you joined BFA, the Catalyst Fund did not exist. You helped spearhead its creation. How were those initial conversations? How did you get the initial investors? Uh, How did you develop your investment thesis?
1: So we... Just to clarify, actually, we call it Catalyst Fund, but it's really an accelerator funded by philanthropic capital. So um, we co-created the program, actually, with the Gates Foundation and J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation four years ago. Um, And our goal was really to see the impactful solutions um, for low-income customers in emerging markets. And that's why we needed this form of capital that could come in early, could de-risk the businesses, and make sure that uh, they succeed and grow and get that follow on capital. Um, So what we were seeing is that uh, there, there was actually a lot of investors uh, in a room and uh, they all were saying, well, there's not really a problem, a pipeline problem, but the pipeline in emerging markets is perhaps not at the standards of quality where we feel comfortable investing, especially at the very, very early stage. And so there is a lack of, capital that can go early and take that risk, and also a lack of uh, talent and skill sets to allow these companies to grow and get to a point where we have, as investors, enough proof points to make an investment in the company. And, um, and so they told us if there were a facility that could provide that you know, small, risky uh, capital at the, at the beginning of the journey of the entrepreneur, and then also give the support, not in a generalized way, but in a way that truly focuses on the challenges and risks that the entrepreneur and individual company is facing. Um, that would, you know, provide us a lot more comfort making the investment down the line, and uh, and could be really catalytic in terms of creating businesses that are solving these big challenges uh, in, in emerging markets. So that was a bit of the background, and, and that's where you know Catalyst Fund. Came in, um, and we see really the role of catalytic capital to be more patient, to take risk, and be more flexible than conventional capital. And, and that's our role, um, say, in the impact investing continuum uh, to, to play at this very early pre seed stage.
0: Curious to learn a little bit more. How did you secure those partnerships, both with JP Morgan and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation?
1: Good question. Um, well, they, I guess, took a, took a chance on us. I mean, BFA had a long history working with the likes of the Gates Foundation and also JP Morgan Chase Foundation. Actually, was a new partner for us, um, but decided to come in because this was very aligned with both actually organizations' missions to expand the financial health and well being of low income populations in emerging markets. So I think it was really a meeting of the minds um, across all actors, the donors, so the funders, uh, us as implementers, and then the investors that now sit in our investor advisory committee. They're all experienced emerging market and fintech investors, including Exxon Venture Lab, Kona Capital, 500 Startups, Gregos Ventures, and uh, and now Anthemis as well, and Flourish, so Exxon Media. And, And so all of us, you know, we're representing actors in the markets that are needed for this kind of solution to work. So Gates Foundation and JP Morgan Foundation really took a chance and saw the alignment uh, in supporting this kind of facility uh, to benefit the entire ecosystem.
0: I'm smiling as you mentioned because we've had some of the partners of some of the names that you just mentioned on the podcast. So pretty glad to know that you work with them. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more uh, about your first investments. Uh, how did you find your initial class of companies? Uh, how did you decide what countries to look at?
1: Absolutely. And before going in there, let me just tell you a little bit more about how Catalyst Fund works in general. So, like the different components, because we're different from other typical accelerators in a number of ways. So, number one, we don't source via an open uh, call, for example, for applications um, or you know other challenge type. Um, methodology to recruit the companies but we source through what we call the investor advisory committee that has the six investors that I just mentioned as uh, board members so to speak and they are the ones in charge of actually going out there and source companies for the program why because that's their full-time job and also they spend you know a lot of time looking for companies and many of them are too early for them and but have strong teams and so a lot of these ideas and, and very successful companies would you know, not have an investment if they didn't have this mechanism to sort of refer them to us, go through the program, accelerate it, and six months down the line, they perhaps are more investment-ready for them to consider them. So they all have one slot per cohort, and they uh, present you know, us with a, a selection of companies, and together we sort of analyze them and see if it fits our criteria. We have a number of criteria that we look at, uh, and then once we pick to the company, the, all, the entire investor advisor committee reviews, and then we approve the nomination to the program. So in a way, it gives that stamp of approval, but it also, because it's an investor, like pre-selecting, uh, but it also builds investor intimacy. So we really kind of, from the beginning, create that connection between the startup and the investors so that the startup chances of raising money after the program is potentially higher. And we have seen that being the case uh, with this setup. So that's how we kind of source and select. And uh, initially, we were very broad in, in scope. Like We said we want to seed successful and high-potential impact-focused you know, businesses in fintech across emerging markets, and we covered about 14 markets. Uh, but then we realized that we, in order for companies to succeed, you know, the acceleration itself, it, it's not enough. Like You really have to work also in accelerating the environment in which the founders operate, And so we kind of shifted to also work on accelerating ecosystems. And for that, you have to be a little bit more geographically focused. You have to have deep dives. And so we decided now to focus on five key markets uh, that are Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, India, and Mexico. Markets that have a lot of potential for fintech. Fintech has been growing a lot and booming uh, in the past few years. And yet there's still a big gap when we think about financial inclusion, pushing the boundaries um, of financial health as well. Um, and filling sort of that last mile gap, so so that's our five countries of focus now. Um, but in the future, we might expand it again to more countries as we trial test, you know, our, our methodology even more.
0: That's very interesting, and and there, there's a lot there to unpack. Uh, going back a little bit to the sourcing, how typically how many companies is each investor bringing? is it you know a list of companies and you work together on which one to invest in or do they typically bring yeah. the the final candidate
1: it depends. Um, there are some investors uh, that like to review candidates among themselves as a team before. Maybe they look at like five, six, and then they bring to us a final nomination. Um, and so, but we know that behind the scenes, there's been that thought process. And I typically tell us, like we ask, like how many more companies have you considered for nomination? Um, and they give us the names. So we have a sense of those that we're not deemed you know, appropriate for that cohort. And others actually prefer to analyze every opportunity with us. So we kind of review together, say five or six, and then make the pick. But what's driving the selection is really the clarity of the mandate uh, and the criteria. And as long as that's you know, spelled out and analyzed properly, they, uh, they bring us really already the hand-picked uh, best opportunities that I've seen out there. And those that do merit this catalytic capital and grants, and there's an additionality there, For them to to reach their goals
0: perfect that makes sense and so going back to this five markets that you are now focusing on uh what are some examples of the initiatives you're taking to help not just the companies but also the the market
1: Uh, great question so we see that even after the acceleration you know there's three main challenges at at an ecosystem level Actually, probably more than that, but we focus on three main challenges. The first is unlocking capital at the early stage. So there's still, across emerging markets, a lack of that early stage of funding that can actually de-risk companies when they're at the start of their journey. And so we created what we call the Circle of Investors, which which is a group of investors globally and locally. Now there's about 60 members that we introduce to our companies uh, and form one-on-one relationships with a double opt-in, obviously introduction, and uh, make sure that those connections are made so that the companies can uh, have those relationships set up. And, and obviously that increases our chances to raising follow-on funding. Uh, in addition to that, there's a lot of learning that happens, like peer learning among investors. So we're also facilitating those conversations for our community, making sure that investors have a platform to exchange, uh, learn from each other learn from what's going on in fintech across different markets, uh, and and we've seen the power of of that cross-learning for the community uh, to actually really unlock potentially more uh, more investments. So so that's one. The second is pathways to scale. I'm sure you're aware, but across Africa and many other markets, the lack of exits is a big issue, and opportunities for the companies to have a clear path to scaling uh, from the early days um, is also challenging. There's also not a lot of debt capital that can typically fuel the growth of companies. And so in order to facilitate that that scaling or those pathways, what we thought would be helpful is actually facilitate connections with corporate partners, corporate innovators, whether it's microfinance institutions or banks or you know, insurance companies or retailers that can be that distribution partner um, and offer that scale potential to our startups. And there's a problem there typically. Like on the one hand, startups tend to be maybe not corporate ready, like for that partnership to really work. And there's a lot that you need to navigate um, for that B2B kind of relationship to really be set up to, for success. And on the other, corporates also tend to be you know risk averse and maybe they don't have an innovation department that knows how to interact with uh, startups or make it easy for them. And so we accompany that journey, make it a little bit less um, scary so to speak on both sides and again like really with the with an eye to make it work for both the corporate partner and the startup and the third area is still talent so again a company might go through a program but after six months even if we really have worked and embedding ourselves in the startup teams because we work very deeply with the companies there's still issues in finding the right talent and growing the team. Typically, when you're you know, growing and scaling, that's uh, a big pain point. So what we're trying to do now is connecting with local talent networks and local universities to make sure that the companies have access to a pipeline of good talent um, and you know top high quality, but also um, to showcase to the youth in a lot of these markets that working in a startup is a viable job opportunity. Um, it's about a viable professional path Um, And uh, hoping that that might lead as well to more interest in working at a young and early stage company.
0: Makes sense. And so within your portfolio and also looking forward, are there any particular verticals that uh, you guys are are more excited about uh, or that you have been paying more attention to?
1: Yes, uh, absolutely. So we have um, a broad mandate you know of supporting financial inclusion and then the financial health of low-income populations and small businesses in emerging markets. That said, we do look at Fintech as embedded across a number of sectors. Like we do believe in the concept of embedded finance. Now Fintech is not necessarily vertical, it's actually horizontal. So even among our portfolio, we have companies that have a fintech, Proposition, but touch the healthcare sector or education or um, access to energy. So, fundamentally, we have three investment pieces. One is financial health and enabling uh, the creation of what we call accessible, appropriate, and affordable solutions uh, for low income populations and businesses. And then the other two now are access to essential services or one might call uh, distributed utilities, you know, at the micro level as well as uh, platforms for the gig economy. Because we've seen that those platforms, with the rise of you know, gig work uh, in many emerging markets, are becoming a vehicle to then deliver financial services, and, and as well as portable benefits that can really make a difference for the worker who's otherwise uh, very exposed and at risk uh, with variable incomes. And you know, their financial security and resilience is typically quite low. So that's our, our third investment thesis, so to speak.
0: Great. Let's talk a little bit about the world we live in right now. We're obviously going through an unprecedented crisis. Every single country is being affected, but arguably emerging markets are being affected even more, right? How are your portfolio companies responding, coping with the situation? How are you helping them along the way? I'm curious okay. to hear your thoughts on, on this COVID-19 crisis.
1: great and obviously timely question. So, you know, in in a number of ways. And I think at the beginning of the crisis, we first started by understanding uh, the situation in each of our markets because the impact of COVID-19 has been quite different across markets. So understanding what were the dynamics um, that each startup was facing and what lesson also we could draw from countries that maybe had experienced COVID-19 impact uh, a little bit earlier. And that other startups could learn from and prepare in advance. So that global, you know, agreement that we have, like the purview across 14 markets, gave us an advantage. So we really brought our portfolio together and uh, had conversations with all the founders. You know, how are you? How are you preparing for the crisis? How are you being affected right now? What are the trends that we're seeing? Um, and uh, you know, do you, doing stress testing on their business models and having all of the, sort of those hard questions asking their questions so that we could help them better prepare, uh, and also giving them a platform to share with each other. Because in this type of crisis, there's a lot of unknown, especially at the beginning. And so that was very beneficial for them to really share and compare notes on what each other, each company was doing. Then the second thing we did was actually uh, trying to understand how the investment climate Was changing so we did speak with a lot of investors in our community to understand if they were hitting pause on their investments if they were um you know deciding to double down on their own portfolios uh and uh how how should we then advise our companies in thinking about for example um reducing burn and having more sustainable um you know financials basically to extend their runway Uh, and so we did invite also investors to speak with them and advise them on um on, on those strategies like how do you really eat, how do you do better cash management to extend your runway so all of that was you know essential and great we'll organize a risk management webinar all you know techniques that were shared by several investors um, and then having one-on-one conversation was key for each company and I will say that um, you know a lot of our companies maybe 60 percent, told us that they would be in a cash constrained situation like six months from now uh, and Those that were fundraising right now obviously had bigger issues and they really needed to kind of look at how, where they could cut down costs and actually speaking with a lot more investors because to increase the odds of getting financing and perhaps even compromising on valuations and, you know, things that perhaps they had expectations before COVID and now we're just living in a different reality. So thinking about different instruments potentially as well. But in, in in that really for the majority of the portfolio. But I will say that that what we've also noticed on the positive side is that a lot of the companies because they were digital because they were already nimble and operating you know as as a startup, they were better prepared to respond, uh, and that some of these fintech products were also so essential in a crisis like this. So we have some companies that quickly pivoted, you know, responded by adapting their product offering or by kind of anticipating some of the product features that were maybe in their roadmap for later to earlier on uh, to play a role in responding to the crisis. An example could be um, a company that we invested in called Sokowatch in in Kenya. They have been phenomenal in setting up basically an e-voucher system that would be delivered to low-income households in Kibera, one of the slums in in Nairobi, uh, and allow those households to get access to $15 of essential food and non-food items through their network of small merchants, they're typically called Dukas in Kenya, and do that on a weekly basis. So seeing that they could do that, the opportunity to digitally deliver a voucher for essential items in a moment of lockdown when your incomes are decreasing was extremely valuable uh, in a way that they could track also the spend uh, of, of those you know, donations, essentially, um, was a solution that is very much needed in, in these crisis moments. So we kind of gave them additional capital to do that, and we're actually testing that solution now uh, with their network of merchants. And it's only one. like, I, Actually, there's several others. There's a company called Turaco. We immediately developed a hospital cash product to cover for cash for expenses related to COVID-19, and they were able to approve that with their underwriters and put it in the market and form partnerships with other players to distribute it. So that was also fantastic. We have another company... Um, that has a SaaS platform for SACOs, so, you know, this, the cooperatives in, in Kenya um, that allows them to go more digital, and in this rush to sort of digitize more of the infrastructure, they were able to offer that at a discount and, you know, kind of position themselves, again, as part of the solution. Um, smile Identity, same thing. They had, uh, they have an EKYC solution that is critical as everything moves even more digitally um, and offer that for free. And uh, Chipper Cash, which is a P2P money transfer, also made donations to specific COVID funds to NGOs at the front line of the crisis. So, you know, across the board, it's been actually very inspiring for us to watch them quickly respond. Um, And the ability that they had to do that nimbly has really kind of been beyond our expectations, frankly.
0: You kind of touch on this, but how can the ecosystem and players like you help reduce the blow of VC investment in emerging markets, right? A lot of people fear uh, going forward, a lot of the international VCs won't be as keen to invest in places like Latin America, mm-hmm. Africa, right? But the story is still there. And in fact, now more than ever, it's actually it's becoming evident that these investments are needed and actually can turn into fantastic results how are you, um, you know, working on, on this problem and, and how can the ecosystem as a whole help?
1: I think you really uh, hit the nail on the head there. It's, you're absolutely right that I think this is a, a moment where we need this kind of catalytic capital and, um, and impact investments really uh, more than ever. I think that the need to, you know, fulfill in general the need to fulfill the SDGs isn't going anywhere, as you said. Like these problems, if anything, have been exacerbated by the crisis, but they were there before. So this is just the, the ripple effects are going to probably be felt even more by the lower income, underserved, vulnerable populations, and and that's where we shouldn't hit the brake. Like we should actually double down on supporting and creating the vehicles that allow capital to flow to those markets. And some, some impact sectors, I think, will be in the short term more in, in demand of that capital. What are we thinking about uh, the health sector or you know, telemedicine, for example, or ed tech to enable efficient distant learning uh, or capital to make sure that small and medium enterprises can continue to operate? But more broadly, we will, across the board, I think, continue to have the need for this type of capital. And valuations actually across the board might be more interesting for investors. So I would see this more as an opportunity to actually continue to deploy capital and not take a step back. And perhaps those valuations that many investors have complained being too high, like in certain markets, uh, might suddenly feel more attractive from an investment point of view. Um, And uh, and that will contribute to unlocking more funding as well. But I think, you know, again, like for, for us, what we have seen with this crisis is a level of interconnectedness and the fragility uh, of our established, you know, global systems. And I think that we, you know, this kind of problem is probably can be equated to similar crises we'll face, with, say climate change or others. Uh, and so I think there is an increased urgency for impact investing to become even more mainstream. Like we can't discount, you know, the type of socioeconomic effect that these our investments have. Um, particularly in these circumstances. So I really hope that we will see more and not less. And and I hope that we will see actually diversity of instruments like ourselves. Like we are philanthropically funded, but we could evolve into a blended finance structure. And I think that creativity and innovation in the type of instruments that are appropriate for emerging markets has to come now. And it's really upon us.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And um, I can only guess the sentiment is shared by all of your partners and your circle of investors, which, which becomes even more important at this time.
1: Yes. You know, it's, it's a tricky one because obviously from an investor perspective, you also have to, at this stage, understand, you know, who are the winners like in your portfolio and kind of doubling down on supporting them. So there is some triaging happening. Um, but I, I would say that the general sentiment is certainly shared. And some of the investors that have figured out how to continue to invest, they're still deploying capital. They're not pulling back.
0: Great. And... In- do you have local teams in all of the markets that you invest in?
1: We do. Uh, we have uh, country managers in all of our five markets. So India, India and Kenya, actually BFA has, has an office there. BFA is the, you know, the fund manager of Catalyst Fund. And then in South Africa, in Nigeria, and in Mexico, we have a country manager as well. And that was critical definitely to maintain the connection with the companies on the ground and with the ecosystem while also being a global program that deploys venture builders across the world and across all our markets.
0: Well, Melise, this has been fantastic, very, very interesting and enlightening. Um, Before we go, we always like to ask our guests to tell us a little bit about uh, your. Activities outside of work outside of the catalyst fund, perhaps some of your hobbies
1: um, great, and <laughs> do we have time these days for hobbies? I feel like work has really <laughs> taken over um, no, I'm joking, so yeah, of course I, I do have hobbies uh, i obviously you know i for my mental health, I actually do quite a bit of exercising and running, and uh, I play the guitar i've been I've trained. You know, to play the classical guitar when I was a kid and continue now to play leisurely. But it's always uh, a great moment to, you know, come together around music. I, I love that. And um, and then, you know, as a true extrovert and uh, a French-Italian, I also love food and connecting with people. So you can't take me away from my glass of wine with friends and uh, cooking with my husband and just like enjoying those pleasures in life. So maybe not so much a hobby, but a uh, modus operandi for lifestyle
0: sounds like you have your right hobbies in place (laughs)
1: yeah exactly i'm sure they're shared that's what makes them fun
0: well thank you so much again this has been a treat and you know you're always welcome to visit us on campus once things get better
1: i'd love that for sure as soon as we can all get on a plane again have a good one great bye miguel
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armazan.